0: 30, Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. And if you would like to read along with me, these three short verses should make for a very short sermon. So verse 28, let's uh, begin. It says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, we thank you for the glory of this invitation. We thank you that Christ has opened the door of salvation and the eternal rest that we can find in you. God, I pray today that the weary soul would find that rest I thank you for your presence among us. May it be felt and known. And may your word go forth, Lord, in great clarity and power. And may you grant this great peace that only you can give to the weighted down souls today. I pray that we would cast off the busyness and the things that the world can so often press upon us. And we would find that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. We ask this in Jesus' name and God's people said, Man, you may be seated this morning. you ever find yourself getting worn out in life? I feel like life can be exhausting. And the reason for that is we live in a culture that has wrong priorities and doesn't know where to find true rest. And then they pump their exhaustion through their words, ways, and schedules on everyone else. The world often promotes a schedule that can become chaotic, overflowing, and filled to the brim with stuff. I've often sat down with people who are just worn out, worn down, exhausted, people who feel overwhelmed, that life has just filled them up with so much that they're running on empty from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed. They have no time to slow down. They... Get one thing accomplished only to find another big trial, obstacle, or responsibility waiting like an impatient customer vying for their attention. You ever ask yourself, how can I live with peace if I've allowed the world to define my schedule with chaos? If this reads chaos in my schedule, how can I live in chaos with peace? The exhaustion of the world can be so much... And it's not just the schedules, it's the dialogue, the fear-mongering, the normalization of evil that is promoted in the world today, the exhaustion of hearing the lies promoted by a media that does not know how to tell the truth. It's exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting to think about going into another political year. And friend, it is not God's design for you to live being overwhelmed, causing feeling in you that like you're being pulled apart. That is not God's design. And if that's how you feel today, just know that God, that's not his plan. It's not God's design. Something is off if that's the case. The problem with many Christians today is they're allowing the world to define their lives instead of letting God. What I mean by that is their schedules reflect the priorities and plans of the world and God often is pushed out. You ask someone, how is your time with the Lord, your time praying and reading and studying the scriptures, and they can respond by saying, well, I've just had a busy week. Well, I've been missing you at church, missing you in our small groups. Well, the ball team's really been keeping us busy. Things have been picking up a lot at work. They're offering us overtime. Now, sometimes life can put a lot on a person. You can have health issues, sicknesses. I just... Talked to a dear family, came in this morning who was in a major car accident, flipped their car like six times, praise God. Both parents and children were able to walk away, amen, and, and uh, some other things that they've gone through, and God's grace has sustained them. Life can press us sometimes, can't it? It can be very, very difficult. But when it's difficult, those are not times for us to pull away from God, it's times to press into God, isn't it? But not all those things in themselves are bad work, games, activities can be good things. But when they push the things of God out of our life, that becomes a problem. The truth is, it is not that we are too busy. It is that we have allowed the world to define us instead of letting God. We place a higher value on the world's priorities and not on God's priorities. We have all been guilty of this in our lives at times. And it's necessary to be honest and define what the root problem is. It's not that we're too busy, it's that we have the wrong priorities. That's the problem. Because if I'm too busy for God, uh, I'm too busy, and my priorities are wrong. I'm not loving God like I need to. And just know this today, God is offering you an incredible peace and rest for your heart and mind. You don't have to live like the world tells you. Friends, the world cannot produce peace. It drifts into more and more chaos. We see it every week of our life through the different outlets of culture and media. Because the life without God is a life that will never know true lasting peace and rest. Isaiah defines this well in Isaiah 48 verse 22. He says, there is no peace saith the Lord unto the wicked. Isaiah 57 20. But the Wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. Ever been on a boat when the sea is troubled? I was out on the ocean last year on a little boat, uh, and the ocean was really troubled, and it made me troubled. (laughs) You all know what I'm talking about. It's like, will it ever stop? You know what I mean? But he says that's how the wicked are like. It's like a sea untrue. That cannot rest. Whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace saith my God to the wicked. No peace. The only peace the world can have. Is, is temporary external peace. Which is based on positive circumstances. Favorable outcomes. Such peace is an illusion. It lasts only as long as things go well. But such peace can be snatched away at any moment. COVID was a reflection of how quickly their pseudo-peace lasted in this world. With this disease, it threatened them and their peace was removed. We watched a world explode with fear, which, by the way, such fear was intentionally promoted. As fear allows those in authority to expand their power and control, fear produces control. And the world promoted the fear of death, which controlled the entire nation. For the unbeliever, their peace is an illusion based on positive circumstances. But the Christian's peace is not based on favorable circumstances. It's based on an internal reality. It's based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ Peace isn't based on something, it's based on someone. The day before Jesus Christ was crucified, He said in John 14, 1, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, if your Messiah was going to be crucified, and, 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 and you would think you're next in line, you would be unsettled. This is a lot more worrisome than a disease that you could have contracted and had a 99.98% chance of surviving from. You see how far we've drifted in our Christianity? John 14, 27, Jesus said in the same chapter, again, this is the day before he is crucified. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Don't let your heart be turbulent. I'm giving you peace. Don't be afraid. The Bible says, fear God, but don't fear men. We're sheep of God, but we are not sheep of the world. You believe that? In the midst of facing imminent, torturous, excruciating suffering and death, Jesus was saying, I'm leaving you with lasting peace. In John sixteen thirty three, Jesus says this, these things... Have I spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace? He said, In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Uh, I have overcome the world. True peace is found in knowing Jesus Christ. When you know that Christ is God who sits on the throne and He who gives peace, He comes into your life as you surrender your heart, your life, your marriage, your family. He's the only one that can provide the spiritual and internal rest of your soul. He says, I'll give you rest on the inside. You know, you ever lay down in the bed and you try to sleep, but you can't sleep because your insides are going crazy. Your mind is running, fear and worry and anxiety and all the things of life can rip all the peace of your life away. The greatest peace man needs is not external positive circumstances to give a pseudo peace, but a true internal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can have peace in life no matter the circumstance when Christ sits on the throne of your life. And the greatest peace that we're in need of, the greatest rest that we need, is the rest of salvation, the salvation of Jesus Christ, and the peace that we have with God. Romans 5:1 says this: "Therefore, being justified, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, how much peace would you have in life? if you had every external circumstance going good for you, but internally you knew you were not right with God, if the world said you're doing great, but God said no you're not, would that give you peace? Or if your external circumstances were difficult, but Jesus says you're exactly where I want you to be and I'll sustain you, would that give you peace? And so that's where we must come to. Just this past Wednesday we had a church planner come and he preached a wonderful sermon this past Wednesday and and he grew up and and uh, began to go to church. Some of his family was a military family. They traveled all over the country and um, <clears throat> successful family. And he began to go to church, but he got, he got away from God. And then he began to turn on God. And his mom tried to get him to come to church with her when she finally decided to start going. And he, did, he rejected that, didn't want any part of it. Went off to college, began studying to be an engineer, And everything was going great for him. His family was financially well off. He could get anything he wanted. Uh, He was doing well in college. The The girl of his dreams was there and they were in a relationship. Everything external looked great for him. But he was so miserable because he had removed God from his life that it was destroying him on the inside. And he got to the point in his dorm room where he didn't want to live anymore. And it was at that point that he said he looked across and there was a box with a Bible in it. He says, to this day, I don't know how that Bible ended up in my room in the dorm. And he opened it up and began to read. And God began to speak into his heart and began to weep. And it was there in that room that he surrendered his life to Christ. And joy flooded into his soul. To such a point that he said, I can't be an engineer. This is not what God's called me to. He's called me to preach and I don't understand it all. But he began to change the course of his life. And he has been blessed so much. Uh, He Now has three children, a precious wife. And God's called that man to preach. And the joy that came into his life. Because peace doesn't come from perfect external circumstances. But from a perfect Savior that comes and sits inside your heart. And friend, if you don't know Christ today, you need to come to Him. You need to come to Him. There is no peace, saith the Lord unto the wicked. There can be no real, lasting, genuine peace for the man who's rejected God. Here in Matthew 11, Jesus is preaching to a world that is filled with self-righteous, external religious people. They were void, though, of a true relationship with God. They based their peace on what they were externally. They externalized their religion. They looked good on the outside, but on the inside, they were filled with sin. And as a result of externalizing religion, they, they, they put a bunch of legalistic restrictions on the people that just crushed the people. Tragically, many of the people that day were so brainwashed in this self-righteous system that they thought they could actually be good enough. And listen to me, there's nothing, as we learned last Sunday, more blinding than self-righteous pride than people in a system that thinks that they can make themselves acceptable to God. It is so blinding that Jesus told them in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 23, notice, he says, thou Capernaum, Capernaum was a religious city. Jesus had set up his home base there to preach in. Uh, They were moralists, they were religionists, but they did not have Christ in their heart. And he says, you Capernaum, which are exalted to heaven, you've been "...privileged with the Son of God living in your city, you shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee, if all these miracles, these messages that Christ gave, had been, which were done in thee, had been done in Sodom, the Old Testament city that was filled with homosexual rapists, if these works were done there... It would have remained until this day. They would have repented. They would have listened. They would have gotten right. But not you. Not you moral religionists. He says, but I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the, day of, in, in the, for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Jesus was saying that spiritual self-righteousness is more blinding than being a homosexual rapist. Is that strong? Th- that's what he's saying. They would have repented, but you won't. Because self-righteousness, there's no greater sin and there's nothing more blinding than that. He said, your judgment will be more severe than the homosexual rapists. I mean, that that is intense language. Do you think those cities wanted Jesus around? I mean, you want to know why they crucified the Lord? Because he said stuff like that. Very, very intense. And he says in verse 25, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent. God conceals his eternal truths from people who are lifted up with self-righteous pride. People who think they are good enough. And he says, you've hid these things from them, but you've revealed them unto who? To babes. Those who humble themselves come to Christ as a humble spirit like a child. God will reveal that. Now, after this fiery message of judgment that Jesus pronounced upon Capernaum, back in verse 21 and 2, he pronounced the judgment on Chorazin and Bethsaida, two other Jewish cities, because of their self-righteous pride. After he brings those... And by the way, if self-righteous pride is the most blinding thing, what do you think Satan would want to fill the world up with? Y'all with me? Religions that promote self-righteousness. He he Satan would love to fill the world up with a bunch of super religious people. Because he knows there's nothing that will keep people from God more than those. So he filled up the nation of Israel with people who had the Bible. And the problem was they had so brainwashed themselves into thinking I could actually keep all of this by my own ability. I can make myself acceptable to God. This book should crush you. Not do what Joel Olstein says and make you feel so much better about yourself. It's not about us. It's about Him. And until you're crushed, you will never be put together. Right? So this this is the reality. This is the reality. So what's amazing is after Jesus gives this potent message he, to till up the hardened soil. Because they wouldn't receive grace, he had to come in judgment. Then he offers the divine hand of grace, of salvation. He says, come unto me. So we see, first of all, Christ's gracious invitation in verse 28. Come unto me. These are the greatest words that ever came off the lips of a man. Jesus, the God-man. It's an invitation from the Lord to come to him to salvation. This is salvation rest. It is personal. It is open. It's like Noah warning the cities of his day saying, the flood of judgment is coming. Come into the ark and be safe from the judgment. So Christ is calling out to these cities saying, come unto the ark. Jesus is the ark of salvation. Come unto me and be delivered from the coming judgment. Isaiah 45, verse 22 says this. Charles Spurgeon was saved off of this message, off of this verse. It says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Look and live. Look and live. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters. This is the invitation Of God, come to the water that satisfies. You remember Jesus with the woman at the well? He says, come unto me and drink of the water that I'll give you and you'll never thirst. Salvation water. He goes on in verse number three. He says, incline your ear, come unto me. hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. We think about Revelation 22 at the very end and conclusion of God's By word, as the apocalypse says in verse 17 of chapter 22, And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let everyone that heareth say, Come, and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water freely. What does it mean to come? What does it mean to come? To come to Jesus means you believe in Jesus. You've put your faith in him. Listen to John 6, 35. John 6 is in the context of the chapter when Jesus has thousands of people, 10 to 15,000 people, and he feeds them with five loaves and two fishes. 5,000 men plus women and children would be at least 10 to really could have been up to 20 plus 1,000 people. And after he feeds them, they're 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 coming to him for the bread. And he says, labor not for the meat that perishes, but the meat that endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. And they're just not getting it. They just can't get the spiritual analogy. They're so focused on the bread, they can't understand the spiritual truth. Because God opens the eyes, He reveals it, but He won't reveal spiritual truth to people who are carnally minded you must come as a babe in Christ. You must come humbling yourself or you'll never receive it. God doesn't treat his word cheaply. He won't give it to you. Now look at John six thirty-five. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that, what's the next word? Cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that, what's the next word? Believeth on me shall never thirst. He's talking about salvation there. So he relates coming with believing, right? So to come to Christ means you believe in Christ. To believe in Christ means you would come to Christ. They're parallel. To come means the Father has also given you to Jesus. Two verses later in John six thirty seven, it says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. All that the Father gives me, shall come to me. If you're saved today, it's because the father gave you to who? Is that good to know? If you're saved, the father gave you to Jesus. How do you feel about that? Is that a good feeling? Is that humbling? Like you're sitting here today as a believer in Christ because the father said, you're a love gift to my son. I'm opening your eyes so you know who he is. And he goes on and says in verse 37, and him that cometh to me, I shall in no wise cast out. This is sovereignty and man's responsibility combined in a transcendency that man just can't get their minds around. God saves, he calls, he elects, he chooses. The Bible uses all of those terms, but he offers to all the gift of salvation. To come means you have heard his voice, not audibly, but internally calling you to salvation. That's why John 10, 27 says this. He says, my sheep hear my voice. If you were saved, he called you. The shepherd called you. And he says, they hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. They, They come to me. And I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish you know why you can't lose your salvation? Because Jesus is the one who saved you. It's not up to you. Whatever saved you is whatever sustains you. If you're saved by works, your works sustain you. But if you're saved by grace, guess what sustains you? Grace. So, So you'll never perish, neither shall any man pluck you out of his hand. To come to Jesus means you believe in Jesus as the Son of God who died, rose again, and your faith is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, How do I come? How do I come? Notice the list of requirements Jesus gives here in verse 28. Come unto me after you've cleaned yourself up for at least a month. You can recite a creed. You have attended a class. You have been baptized. You've done some religious works. Is that what he says? Anybody thankful that he doesn't say that? Right? He just says, come to me. Come to me. It's like the king Saying, come into the palace. And you're like, I'm dressed in rags. He says, just come and I'll dress you. I'll clothe you in the royal garments. Be the prodigal coming home and I'll put a ring on your finger. I'll put shoes on your feet. You destitute soul, you must come destitute. Just come unto me. What, What a wonderful, wonderful invitation. When I studied Islam, I learned that they have a good angel on one side and a bad angel on the other. And you know what those angels do every single day? They record your good works and your bad works. And unless you're 51% righteous, you don't make it into paradise. And paradise in Islam is that the man would die and he would go to paradise and he would have the strength of a hundred men for sex and drink. And so they get 75 virgins. Now, you know, a man created that religion. <laughs> Y'all with me? I mean, I've studied Roman mythology and, and Greek mythology. They, they all had these gods of sex. I mean, you slept with the temple prostitute. You're sleeping with Diana or Artemis. You're like, you know what, dude made that thing up. You know, and then they had the goddess, God Bacchus, who was a god of the wine. And so you would have drunken sexual wickedness and lewdness. And that was all part of worship. And you're like, yeah, men must have come up with that. You, you see? But you come to the Bible and it's an emptying of ourself. It's not about self-satisfaction of the flesh. It's about eternal satisfaction that's only found in the person of Christ. And, and, and notice the authority, like the audacity of the statement, I think. He says, come unto me and I'll give you rest. Who can say that? Who, who could make that statement? In verse 27, the Lord had said, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. In other words, I have all the power and authority. So come. What kind of, what kind of. Christ do we have? What does he do when he yields all the power and authority? He says, just come and I'll do all the saving. I'll do it all for you. That's the kind of God we have. I'm not looking for you to be 51% righteous. I'm looking for you to be 100% humble so that I can be your 100% righteousness. Is that a good deal? Give me your 100% sin and I'll give you my 100% salvation. Turn your life over to me. Come broken and destitute. And that's the only way you can come. Salvation is in Christ alone from Christ alone. Christ both reveals salvation and He is salvation. (laughs) He turns the light on and then He saves. He's the illuminator and the Savior. He does it all. He he does it all. That's That's why He says in verse 27... All things are delivered to me under my Father. No man knoweth the Son, but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will or is willing to reveal him. The only way you can be saved is if Jesus is willing to show you who the Father is. You won't be saved unless God turns it on for you. And you ain't going to get that in a book. You're not going to read that in a university. You're not going to come to some kind of intellectual, elevated PhD to where now you're going to understand God. You come as a child, as a babe, not as the wise and prudent, but as a babe. And then he makes the humble wise. So the next thought is, is this an open or closed invitation? Is this an open invitation or a closed invitation the Lord gives? Look at verse 28. He says, come unto me, how many? All. So that's an inclusive term. It's a Greek, pasa, all. But it's restricted by our Lord's following words. All, notice the restriction, ye that labor and are heavy laden. Now an open invitation is an invitation that says, one is always welcome to come. A closed invitation is an invitation that is open to only those who are specifically invited. So, Christ's invitation is both open and closed. Here the invitation is open to all, but closed to only those who are laboring and are heavy laden. Right? Now, who do those who are laboring and heavy laden refer to? Who is that referred to? J.C. Ryle expounds that the laboring and heavy laden describe all who are pressed down and feel burdened by the weight of sin. Now, the word labor there is a Greek word, which means to grow weary, it's the idea of, of, of working to the point of exhaustion, like sweating. You, you have exhausted your resources. It's also in the present tense, which means, which means you're constantly doing this. You're always worn out. You're always exhausted. You're discouraged. You're ready to throw in the towel. You're just overwhelmed. And this is an internal, internal exhaustion of one who's trying to make themselves acceptable to God. You have worn yourself out trying to make yourself acceptable to God. Anybody ever felt like that in life? Like you're just trying to live up to the standard of God, and you just feel like you always fail, and, and you're just exhausted from it? Do you realize one of the greatest gifts God gives us is to allow us to feel the fatigue and exhaustion of a life without God at the center? Proverbs 13, 15 says, Good understanding giveth favor, but the way of the transgressors is hard. Jeremiah uh, 2, verse 19, this is a really powerful verse. He says, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee. You know, sin is exhausting. Pursuing God on your own is exhausting, but also sin is exhausting. And, and sin will whip you. <laughs> That's why he says, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee. Thy backsliding shall reprove thee. you get your tail whipped when you start sinning. It'll whip your tail. Anybody ever been whipped by sin? It yeah, beats you down. So you will labor. You, you, you are exhausted. You're, you're invited. Secondly, heavy laden. Tidzo is the Greek word. It pictures someone that's overburdened like an animal carrying a giant load on its back. It is also in the perfect tense, which means a completed action in the past. It's a past action that's been completed. The picture Jesus paints in the word labor and heavy laden is someone that's internally weighed down by trying to appease God and sin that is just crushing them. And and the heavy laden is, is someone dumping all these restrictions on you from the outside and just crushing you with that as well. So it's internal exhaustion and external exhaustion. This is what the religious leaders did to the people in that day. Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus says, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born. They wear you out. So the invitation is to the weary, the exhausted, those worn out, pressed down, crushed under the weight of their own sin and their own inability, who have been humbled by life. They recognize they need a Savior, a Deliverer, because they just can't do it on their own. And notice who the invitation is not for. In verse number 25, it is not for the wise and the prudent. It's not for them. It says, Father, you've hid these things from the wise and prudent. Now, if you have your Bibles, hold your place here. But if you could flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter number one, I want to show you a few things in that passage. The word wise is like worldly wise. Prudent is a word that could be translated also as uh, learned intelligent, having understanding. This passage in 1 Corinthians is a great parallel to this. Because when you you come to the church at Corinth, that was like a, a hub of the world of that time. I mean, everything culturally relevant was there. They had the temple to Diana, up on the Acropolis, up on the hill, a couple thousand feet up. Thousand temple prostitutes would descend on the nightlife. It was a seaport city. It was called a seamen's paradise. To, to be corinthized meant to go to bed with a prostitute. Is a wicked city. Uh, it was a very intellectual city. Uh, to, to to thrive in Corinth, you had to be well spoken. You had to be sharp. You had to be. You, you had to look the part. You had to look strong. You had to look able and capable. The problem was when Paul came, he 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 came with a very humble. Style of speech on purpose, and he looked bodily weak, and he did that on purpose, and 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 he did everything that the people at Corinth were like, you know, they would probably listen to you more if you would just modify your method. I mean, you know, calm down the crucifixion language because the Jews that causes them to stumble; they don't understand why their Messiah would be crucified, and then to the Gentiles, they're like, that's that's insane. You're preaching a crucified God, and the crucifix was so appalling to them in that day, they're like, you don't even use the word in public speech. He's like, you need to change this up. Like, make it more appealing. This is just not a palatable message. Paul's like, oh, you, you, you thought the lost were supposed to determine the message. Well, you got this thing wrong. We, we don't have a man-centered message. We have a Christ-centered message. So he says in verse Corinthians 1.18, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish moronic. It could be translated as moronic. It's from the Greek word moros, from where we get the English word. Say, So, so it's to them that perish. This is a moronic and foolish message. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. God asks, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I mean, God humbles the world. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. In other words, you don't come to know God by your worldly wisdom. Rather, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching, or you could translate it as, of the thing preached, being the gospel of Christ. It, it, it pleased God by the foolishness of God, the gospel of Christ that was preached to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign. That's why the Jews in the New Testament were always like, show us a sign, Jesus. I mean, he, he would just get done feeding like 20,000 people. And like, show us a sign. I mean, just so bl- weren't they so blind, so blind. And, and the Greeks seek after wisdom; they're they're wanting Plato and Aristotle. Verse twenty three. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block; unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are what's the word? Unto them which you are what? Oh, so who are the ones that get saved? They're the ones. That the Father has given to the Son. Is that right? Can you be saved if God doesn't call you to it? No. And He only calls you if you've humbled yourself like a little babe. And you cast off your pride and your arrogance and your skepticism that's so foolish. What are you going to judge God? You going to sit on that throne? Right? You're going to tell me all the errors in the Bible? Really? How's that working for you? I remember talking to one young man. shared the gospel with him. He said, I just don't believe the Bible. I said, why don't you believe the Bible? He said, there's so many errors in it. I said, oh, really? I've spent a few days reading it. I was like, tell me one. He said, well, man wrote the Bible and it says God wrote the Bible. See, that's a that's a contradiction right there. I said, oh. I said, "See, you're... Hand was broken. You wanted to write your grandma a letter. And I said, and I said uh, what do you want to say to him, Andy? Say to your grandma, Andy. And uh, so I started writing down that letter. I said, who wrote the letter, you or me? He said, well, I said, do you have any other contradictions you want to talk about? He's like, well, not really. But I, just, I was like, you might want to try to read the Bible. That's a good place to start. If you're going to stand as judge of the Bible, you might try reading it first. It's, you, you, the, the ones God calls are the humbled. He calls both Jews and Greeks. God is not prejudice. Jew and Gentile. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. I can't help but to think how a fly in resting position has a brain that works 10 to like the ninth power which is faster than all, the, the, the fastest computer system that man has ever designed. A fly in resting position has a brain that computes faster than the fastest computer system. It, that, that's the foolishness of God. But anyway, so he, say, he says, You see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen what kind of people? The foolish things, the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things, the world to confound the things that are mighty. And the base things, the world and the things that are wise. Hath God chosen. Yea, and the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. Salvation is the work of God. He calls, he chooses, he saves those who are willing to humble themselves. Not the prideful, not the arrogant. was a few years ago, the host of a broadcast asked John Ortberg, who was teaching on leadership all over the country. The television host asked Ortberg, who was a great storyteller, he said, why why are you traveling all over the country saying that Jesus is the greatest leader that's ever lived and to build leadership principles off after him? Ortberg said, um, he said, imagine you're a gambler 2,000 years ago. Would you have put your money on a Roman empire that dominated the world and the Roman army? Or would you put your money on a Jewish rabbi with 12 inexperienced followers to last? Which one do you think would have lasted? He says, isn't it interesting that all these years later, we are still naming our kids, Matthew, James, Sarah, and Mary, and we call our dogs, Nero and Caesar. I rest my case. God chooses the weak, friends, to confound the wise. And the base things the world says is moronic. And God says, you're going to see what I'm going to do to you, Rome. You're going to be a pile of dust. You're nothing. You know why? Because the way of the wicked is going to perish. What are you basing your life on? And and do do you see that the invitation is given to the humble, to the babes? What a blessed weariness it was that brought us to Christ. Amen. Aren't you thankful that sin and life and weight exhausted you to the point to where you realize you can't do it on your own? Also consider whenever you come to one place, you always have to leave another. Simple thought. But to come to Lighthouse, you had to leave your home or wherever you were at. In the same way, when you come to Christ, you have to leave things. And that's why people don't want to come to Christ they don 't want to leave behind their self sufficiency their pride their sin the control of their life they don 't want to leave that they want to remain in control. Jesus said in john five forty "You will not come to me that you might have life matthew eleven twenty nine is actually a quotation from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. I always like studying out of the King James, but if you read parallel versions, one version I would encourage you to add to that is it n a s b or the new American standard because in that version, it capitalizes any quotations of the New Testament from the Old. And you won't know that typically unless that's capitalized, so it's very helpful. But, but verse 29 is a quotation out of Jeremiah 6, verse 16. In Jeremiah 6, 16, it says this, Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the way, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls." But they said, we will not walk therein. We will not walk there. We will continue in the way that the world has given us. Friend, no greater invitation will you ever be given than the invitation Jesus offers you today to come. Come unto me. But if you don't feel that you are insufficient, if you are not laboring and heavy laden, because you can hold it all together on your own, then then you won't come. And the invitation really isn't for you. Because until you come to the end of you, you won't come to the beginning of him. Thirdly, the exclusive rest is found in Christ. He says in verse 28, Come unto me, I will give you rest. Take my yoke, learn of me. Augustine rightly said, Lord, thou madest us for thyself, and our soul will find no rest until they find their rest in thee. As I said before, sin is exhausting. I want you to understand something today that um, sometimes the closer you get to Christ, sometimes you feel the weightiness of sin. Like you feel like, you know, your sin becomes more acute. Um, That is a blessing of God because it lets you know that you're dependent and you never stop depending. Think about if you never felt conviction over sin then you, would become, you and I would become self-righteous. We would, we would be threatened with that. So I think God lets us have enough struggles in our life to keep us humble. Y'all, y'all understand that? Like, because sometimes we're like, I think I can walk on my own. And the Lord's like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I'm getting out of here. Oh, yeah. It's like that little child learning to walk, right? He's like, I got this, Dad. I got, no, I don't got this. Now, they don't say that, but that's how they're feeling when they're shaking like a leaf. And they shake and they go straight to the ground, don't they? The legs wobble, they go right to the ground. We are, we are upheld by him. I think about Isaiah 6. When Isaiah came into the presence of God, you know what it did to Isaiah? It devastated him. The greatest prophet of Israel in that day, the great preacher, called him the prince of the prophets. He came into the presence of God in Isaiah 6. And when he saw God for the first time, he saw himself for the first time. He had been preaching woe judgments on the nation. Woe unto thee, Israel. Woe unto thee. And he's preaching hard messages. When he came to the presence of God, he cried out, woe is me. It devastated him. Because it is the glory of God that reveals how sinful our sin really is. You ever go into a room and say you're in a house where there's a hundred year old home. Nobody had been in there. You pull the drapes off of some furniture that's in the room. What happens the moment that you open that big 10-foot window next to that old house? What do you see in the air? You see dust. You can see the rays specifically coming through that window. Did the light create the dust? Nope. The light only exposed it. People don't come to the light because they love their sin, right? Right? But I can tell you, friends, when you come into the light, it exposes it. But then that allows us to, you know what it does? It lets us feel the love that God, you love me like this. You love me. Now, it's one thing to love someone who's lovable. It's another thing to love someone who's not lovable. God loved us while we were yet sinners. And then he died for us. that should should cause us to both love Christ and worship him and then repent and turn away from any lasting sin. But I want you to hear this. If God let you and I see how wicked our sin really was, we would be crushed. All of us immediately would fall to our faces in a moment. Literally, it it would literally crush every person in this room. Um, In a small way, if I could, um, if you ever deal with somebody that's deep in addiction, been drugging, drinking, pilling for a long time, raise your hand if you've ever known anybody in your life like that, right? Okay. Look around the room. This is a very familiar reality. Now, people that do that, and and if you've done that personally or you know someone, and especially if you've done it personally, you're going to know exactly what what I'm saying here. The reason that they stay in that most of the time is because they they cannot handle the mental strain on the inside, the guilt, the weight, the conviction. They have to sedate it. They have to they have to numb it. it it's it's crushing them. I've had multiple people who've gotten sober over the years call me up and say, Pastor, I need can, can I meet with you? I need to talk if today if possible. I need to talk. And I say, Absolutely, man. I'll drop whatever I'm doing. Come in. We meet. I've had this happen multiple, multiple times. Grown men in my office, it's because of the situation, they always end up, like I'm like, let's pray. I mean, they get down on their knees. They, they begin to weep puddles of tears like this, just uncontrollably flowing. I've never in my life seen anyone cry ever in my life, even at funerals, as hard as I've seen some of these guys cry. Just just pouring, sweating, exhausted. I mean, just, poor. and you know what's, what, what, what it, why they do that? Because for the first time, they realize what they've done to their family, what they've done to their marriage, what they've done to their friends, how they've wasted so much of their life. And, and they, had, they had turned all those breakers of sensitivity off on the inside, so they couldn't feel it, they couldn't understand it, they, they kept numbing it. But now the breakers are on, the light is on, and it's crushing them. And I get to take them to Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, and Jesus says, come, are you crushed? That, that load is not for you alone. You, you cast your care on me, I care for you. But you need to understand this, it is a grace of God Every person in this room needs to understand this. It is the grace of God that God doesn't let us see how wicked our sin is or we would be in that exact position, every one of us, before the chairs that we're seated right now. It would destroy us. One day we're going to get to heaven and say, God, I never knew. No idea. That's why it's like, how could, how could we be so hard on other people when we have so much of ourselves to deal with, right? They that are down fear need no fall. What that means is this. If, if, you, if you humble yourself, other people can't put you down. You've already taken the lowest seat. It's like somebody saying, you know, I can't believe they said all that stuff about me. Which the right response would be like, praise God, they don't know everything else. <laughs> That's all they know. Praise the Lord, they don't know God, everything God knows. God knows. Could you imagine this week? It's like God, Jesus came in here and he's like, I'm going to sit you down in front of this entire congregation. We're going to put up every thought and deed you did this last week. You'd be like, get out. <laughs> I'll be running out of this. We'd be out of here, wouldn't we? God knows. And God still cares for your soul. He still loves you. Who would love you after they knew everything about you? Love is risky, isn't it? It's one thing to be loved in unknown. That's superficial. But the love that God has is to be fully known and fully loved. People are afraid to open up. You ever talk to somebody? Maybe that's you today. You're afraid to open up. Kind of conceal yourself. Life hurts you. Pull back. Isolate. You know why you do that? Because love is risky. That's why people break away from churches. They don't want to be a part of a church. You know why? Because they don't want to chance it. You're worth the risk for me. Because he's worth it. And and, and to love people. But to come to God and to know that he knows everything about you and he still says yes. Now now let me ask this. Why, Why can Jesus give us rest? Why is he able to do this? Because Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus Christ carried the weight of sin so that we wouldn't have to. And he gives us He gives us rest. It means, the word rest there, anapuo, means to cause someone to become physically refreshed as a result of resting from work. You you can only find rest in Him. And, And one final thought I want to give to you today is the paradox of Christ's yoke. The paradise of Christ's yoke. He says, take my yoke upon you And learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, what is a yoke? What is that? Well, it was a wooden device. It was carved out of wood. And you need to understand this too. As the carpenter carved the piece of wood, he designed it specifically for that animal. To sit upon the shoulders so that it was... Framed for that animal. It was suited for them. Fitted to them. But a yoke was also not just for one. A yoke was always joined two together. And the purpose for that was so that one would not have to carry the whole load by themselves. And here the picture the believer has from the Lord is this. Jesus is saying come and I will be yoked with you. You don't have to pull it alone. You're going to be yoked with me. Jesus never asks us to work for him, only with him. He yokes us with himself. And it's always manageable because he's always in the yoke with us. That's why Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He works through us. Here's a lifelong truth that you must understand, and you need to grab this, and you need to tattoo it to your heart and mind. The more of your life that you give to God, the easier it gets. The whole cross is always easier than half the cross. The problem is we try to carry more than God designed for us to carry. Growing up, I had an uncle that was big and strong like a Jim Schwarzkopf. I had, a, this guy was like a, like a giant, man. I mean, just, you know, I was, I was a teenager at the time, a, kind of a, maybe 14, 15 years old. And, and he said, hey, I need you to help me carry out this freezer out of the basement. Now, this wasn't like those Littles freezers. I mean, you could put a body in this thing, and it felt like there was a body in it when we were carrying it up. I mean, this thing was, I, I went to, like, lift up one side. I couldn't even, you know, like, it, it, was just, it was just hard to carry, the big squared thing. It was long, like, seven plus feet. It was huge. And his steps were, like, the super incline—that's kind that you'll die on. It's like, this is just a set-up-to-die situation. So I was glad when he said, you go up the stairs and you carry the top part. I was like, at least it won't fall down and crush me. But what I found was when, when this, my Uncle Doug, when he, when he, he grabbed that thing like a bear. He lifted that just picked it up. And 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 I found myself at the, you ever you ever carry something with like several people and and after a while you're like <laughs> there ain't no weight on this side, baby. And you and you're, you you make some noise and acting like it's hard but you're like Ugh! ah ah yeah, man, it's heavy. And then there's some other guy all the way got transferred to him. He's like, come on, man. So heavy. I'm like, I don't know why you're struggling over there. You need to work out, brother. Well, that's what, that's what like Doug was for me. He's, he's like taking the whole thing. I was like, I was like, I don't think I'm touching this thing. He's like, he like did it all. It was just crazy. What we need to understand is this. God didn't design for us to be on the bottom carrying up the heavy part. He says, you link yourself up with me, and I'll take care of it. But here's what happens. We are so weighed down by the world. We have been so exhausted. We have been so fatigued that when somebody says, add this yoke to your life, we're like, I can't add anything to my life. When you're at, talking about adding something, how's your Bible reading? I, too busy. You don't. You don't. You don't even understand. Been missing you at church. You, you, you just don't understand how much is going on in my life. Oh, so you're still pulling that yoke alone, right? Oh, you. You're on the bottom. You're on the. You're not gaining ground, are you? Busy spinning your wheels. You're exhausted. And I'm making ground though, right? Jesus says, you yoke with me and you will find my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When I, in the Bevan family, when I was a teenager, when, when, when that home that was so driven by sports, driven by stuff in life and busyness, and we were so chaotic, running this, doing that, life was pulling us apart. If you were to say, you know what, I want you to start going to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Saturday men's prayer, uh, Thursday night, visitation, all these other things. We was like, you're insane. It's insanity. We are so filled up. We have no room. We have no room. No room in our time, our, our finance. Nothing. Our family was just driven with life. But when God became the priority and we fully surrendered and yoked to him, I can't even tell you how it happened. I don't even know how it works. But all I know is this. We accomplished 10 times more and it seemed to be 10 times easier. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. It's like, you mean you mean I'm able to accomplish all this and it's just, people used to always tell me, you know, wait until your girls are teenagers. You're going to be so worn out. I feel sorry for you. And, and, and I say this with humble and all glory to Christ it's all of him it's only of him, only of him, but I feel like this like this is, this is like fun it's been fun the whole time. it was fun when they were little. it's fun now, and it just it's just fantastic he, when it got heavy was when I thought it was up to me, and exhausted me, and it wore me out, but when I realized, you know what I can't keep my kids where they need to be. It's the Lord that does that. I can't keep my marriage where it needs to be. The Lord does that. I, you know, the most exhausting time of my life pastoring was when it was about probably two, one to two years old, three years old, first few years, because I thought a lot of it was up to me. And it was so exhausting. But the Lord taught me, it's my church, Josh. Why don't you, why don't you cast those burdens on me? And so it's, it's like, wow, Man, we're, you know, it's, it's easier pastoring a church of 700 than it was 150. And it's all of him. You're his people. You're, you're his body. And I get it. I get the joy of serving with you. I get to serve him with you. This, listen, when, when you and I begin to think we're in control, you will be exhausted. So how are you doing, mom, dad? Did you have time this week for the Lord? You still pulling alone? Feeling like you're going to get somewhere? Are your priorities defined by God or by Christ? Or are they defined by the world? What's wearing you out? If you don't have time for the things of God, I can tell you uh, there is a priority problem. And you have, you have allowed the things of the world to become such a priority that you will be exhausted the rest of your life. This is uh, this is the truth that the Lord lays out for us, as he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I was reading about a missionary who was in Africa, and he was trying to figure out, as he was translating a Bible into the native's language, what the word for believe was to be. And he just could not find the right word, and he's trying to they didn't have a they didn't have a word that like meant the same. And so, one day he was in a hut, and there was a man who came in. He was running to deliver a message, and he was extremely exhausted. And he came in and he and he fell down after he delivered the message into a into a chair, and and, and he made a statement. And and the pastor asked one of the men in the room. He'd never heard that word before. He says, "What what was that word that 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 man uttered?" And he said, "Oh, he is saying." I'm at the end of myself, therefore I am resting all of my weight here. I'm at the end of myself and I'm resting all of my weight here. And the preacher said, that's the word for belief. That's how he translated into that translation. It's, It's when you are so exhausted that you've come to the end of yourself and you rest all of your weight in Christ. And you realize I don't have to be the one trying to hold this thing up. I get to give it to Christ. That's why the Bible says this in 1 Peter chapter number 5. The Bible says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all of your care on him because he cares for you. What are you carrying today? What are you carrying today? When you and I try to hold the things of life up, it will crush you. You will feel anxiety over your marriage. You will feel anxiety over your children, over your work, over your finances, over life, over the government, over politics, over everything will just exhaust you. But if you come to the end of this and say, praise God, I get to give that to Jesus. Praise God, I don't have to carry the brunt of that. And, and you know what a, the, the carpenter would do? He would carve that to where that, that literal yoke would fit around the shoulders just so it was suited just for that one just so it would fit him and it wouldn't chafe him. Christ fits the trials, the hardships, the tasks, the responsibilities exactly for what your life can handle. He doesn't give you more than you can handle without him or less, he gives you exactly what your life needs. And today you can come and I can tell you, friends, until you fully surrender to Him, you're going to miss some things. You're going to miss it. You're going to miss the peace. You're going to miss the rest. You're going to miss the fruitfulness. You're going to miss all the things God could do in your life. It doesn't get harder the more you surrender to Him. It gets easier. It gets easier on the inside. You don't have to carry all that. So I don't know what you're carrying today, but the world will wear you out. I was talking to a military guy this last week who uh, handles recruiting locally here in town. I said, how's the recruiting going? He said, man, we're getting a lot of people in. He said, but the problem is 90% of the people coming in are on anxiety medications and different things like that. And he said, and the military won't take them. He said, because COVID, you you know what that's telling us? Everybody's running to the world to find their peace. And, and, And does that anxiety medication give you peace? They would just know this. Listen today, I don't know what you're going through, but why don't you give it over to the Lord? Fully surrender your life to him. Don't miss it today. Don't miss it. If you're not saved, Jesus says, come unto me. Be saved. You must humble yourself. We have men and women that could talk with you, share with you from the word of God. Today you could come and be saved. Would you do that?